The Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. His word endures forever. Let's pray together. God, as we now approach your holy word, Lord, we pray that you would give us a holy reverence. God, we pray that you would cause each one of us to quiet our minds, to quiet our mouths, to open our hearts, and to be receptive to the things that you would say to us. God, we recognize that your word is a gift that you have given to us. Lord, your word is what makes us wise unto salvation. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Your word is the instrument that you use to grow us up in our most holy faith, to conform us into the image of your son, to help us to progress in righteousness and godliness. And so, Lord, we receive your word today as a gift, and God, we honor you and we honor your word. Father, we pray that you would, in this time, use your holy word to accomplish your wonderful purposes in each of our own lives and in us corporately as a church family, God. So would you bless us now? Would you speak to us and minister to us in your holy word? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Good morning, everyone. Go ahead and grab a seat. It's wonderful to worship together every single Sunday. I prefer this weather over last Sunday's weather for sure. It's a joy to be here on a sunny, clear, beautiful day. I can still remember the very first time that I did a graveside service for a family whose loved one had died. I was nervous. Not only because I had to speak publicly in front of people, but even more so because of the context. I mean, it was just such an intense and challenging moment to be helping a family navigate through grief. I'm pretty sure I was sweating in my suit. I was only 24 years old, not even old enough to rent a car. I'm just kidding. I know that's a myth, but when I was growing up, people said you had to be 25 to rent a car. For the record, you don't. But I was only 24. I was at that time in a pastoral training program at my church. I'd been working alongside the pastoral staff for many months. I'd accompanied seasoned pastors to numerous funerals and gravesides. But on this particular day, something changed. I was no longer with those pastors observing how they did a graveside. I had to do it myself. And at every point, uh, an apprentice has to take that step. You have to do the work yourself. Sure, it is wise and it's good to have a season where you're just with a mentor and you're learning from them and you're taking it all in. But finally, you have to do the work that they themselves are doing. Up to this point in the Gospel of Mark... The role of the 12 has been to be with Jesus. We learned that back in chapter 3, verse 14. But as we learned there in chapter 3, being with the master Jesus was only one half of the reason that Jesus had called these men out from the larger group of disciples. I'm going to put Mark 3, 13 and 14 on the screen for us so that we can see this dual purpose for their calling to be apostles of Jesus. Here's what it says. 
And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, that's one half, and he might send them out to preach. So yes, the 12 were called to be with Jesus. That's the most fundamental thing. But they were also called to be sent by Jesus to go out and to do the very works that Jesus himself did. And it is this sending out of these 12 that we're now reading about together here in chapter 6. Let's look again at verse 7 and the sending out of these 12. And then let's begin to unearth some things from the text together. So this is Mark 6, verse 7. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Let's stop there. So again, he's calling these same 12 and now he's sending them out. The Greek verb there that we translate sent out is where we get the word apostle from. An apostle is a sent one. These are the initial ones who Jesus sends out. And notice that Jesus sends them out two by two. Now, Jesus could have said, all 12 of you are going to go to different villages and we're going to really multiply our effect here even more greatly, but he sends them out two by two, cutting their capacity in half, you would think, but There's wisdom to this. By sending them out in pairs, of course, Jesus is allowing them to have companionship. Having a partner with you provides protection. And it also gives them a second witness testimony that confirms the message that they have to share with the villages and the towns in Israel. As you continue to go forward in the Bible, we see this pattern repeated in the book of Acts. The original missionaries of the church were also going out two by two. We know that Paul and Barnabas, the kind of first missionaries that are launched from a church, the church of Antioch in Acts chapter 13, the two of them are sent out together. And then later when Paul and Barnabas have a disagreement, yes, Christians can have disagreements, and the disagreement's so severe that they say, you know what, let's just agree to disagree. You go your way, I'll go my way. Once they make that decision, the two of them don't just go out as individuals. They actually both include another person in the work they're going to do. Barnabas takes Mark. Paul takes Silas. There seems to be a lot of wisdom here. Now, we're at the point now in our church's life where um, sometimes I'm being given opportunities to sort of just speak into the lives and the ministries of other church planners and specifically church replanters because that's what we were able to do here at Apostles. And in those kinds of contexts, you get the question, like, what advice do you have for these guys or for this church? And there's a lot of things that can be said, but I am finding myself more and more kind of growing in my desire to emphasize this idea. I'll say to guys, listen, if it's at all possible, find a partner. Bring a partner with you. That will make such a massive difference. If you know anything about our story here at Apostles Church, when my wife Erica and I were praying six years ago about whether or not we would come here and take over this church, which was in a place that it needed to be replanted, one of the things that we began praying very earnestly for was that God would send somebody else with us, that we would not come here and do this alone, that we would have partners in ministry that we already knew that we had shared vision and theology with that could come and roll up their sleeves and do this work with us. And one of the things that for us felt like such a confirmation from the Lord was when Ryan and Taylor McGinnis came to us and said, you know what, we feel like the Lord has put it on our hearts that we're going to go to Santa Barbara too and help replant Apostles Church. And what a blessing and a gift that has been for me and I know for my wife to have the McGinnises with us. And I know they've been a gift to this church family. Jesus here looks at the initial ministers that he's going to send out and he pairs them up. And he sends them out in these pairs and now we come to the most important part of the sending of the 12. I want you to key in in verse 7 on that word authority. 
authority. If you've been with us so far through our series in the Gospel of Mark, you'll recall that the authority of Jesus is being emphasized over and over and over again. It's one of the major themes in the first five chapters. Through those five chapters, we come to discover that this Jesus has the authority to forgive people of their sins, which of course is an authority that only God has. We come to find that this Jesus has authority over nature. He can look at a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee and just speak a word to it and it stops. We come to learn that this same Jesus has authority over the demonic realm. He can look at a demon and he can tell that demon to flee and it will run. We learn that Jesus has authority over sickness, even chronic sickness, and people being paralyzed and having all sorts of different issues physically. Jesus has authority over all of that. That's not all. We find that Jesus even has authority over death. He can look at a 12-year-old girl who has died and tell everybody, fear not, she's just sleeping, and bring her back to life. Jesus is this man with God-like authority because, of course, he is the God-man. But something significant shifts now at Mark chapter 6. Jesus, the one who possesses all authority, now extends his authority through the apostles. He's going to share that authority with them. He's going to give that authority to them so that they can go out and do the works that he himself did. The title of this morning's sermon is Jesus Extends His Authority. That's the big idea of what's happening here in these verses. And friends, this will be very critical once Jesus has completed his earthly mission and is no longer physically present on the earth. Right? Jesus came to this earth for the redemption of his people. He came to deal with our sin problem. And he did that by living the life that you didn't live and I didn't live, a life of perfect righteousness. And then he did that by willingly offering his life, his righteous life, for your sins. And he died on the cross to remove the sins of all of his people. And then, of course, three days later, he rose from the grave, triumphing over our greatest enemy, death. But after that, Jesus ascended back to the Father where he is now. He's in heaven. He's ruling and reigning until he returns again. And in that interim where Jesus is in heaven, it's very important that his authority is still extending throughout the earth. And he's extending that authority through, initially, these 12 apostles. He gives them his authority in verse 7. We'll talk about this more in a moment, but this is why when we get to verse 11, Jesus can say, listen, if a town rejects you and your message that I've given you, then I want you to pronounce judgment on that town. You're going to pronounce God's judgment on them. See, the apostles at this point are now speaking and they're ministering, not in their own authority, but in the very authority of Jesus Christ. In Luke 10, 16, Jesus says, The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who sent me. So again, Jesus at this point has given his authority to the apostles and they're operating in it. But friends, we too, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, have been commissioned by Jesus to go in his authority and to extend his ministry around the world. It's called the Great Commission. It's in Matthew chapter 28. Starting in verse 18, we read, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So whose authority is it? It's Jesus' authority. But he goes on and he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So while none of us are apostles with a capital A, like the original 12, every single one of us who have said yes to Jesus are sent ones. Jesus has given us a commission, and it is to make disciples of all the nations. 
And as we go and carry out that commission, we are going not in our own authority, but in an authority that Jesus has given us. We're sent on mission by his authority and with his authority. And friends, this should give us as Christians great confidence in the mission. We are sent by Christ's authority and we are sent with Christ's authority to go and to make disciples here in Santa Barbara and in Goleta, in California, in the United States, even to the ends of the earth. And since we have Christ's authority, we should have great confidence in this mission's success. When we preach the gospel, we should not preach the gospel going, well, this probably won't work. Nobody's going to say yes to this. Nobody's going to want to follow Jesus. When we preach the gospel, we should be saying to ourselves, this is the very power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. We should preach the gospel with great conviction, believing that God will use it, that as his word goes out, it will not return void. That's what Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 says. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. So again, when we're preaching the gospel as Christians, we should have a confidence that God is going to use the gospel to draw people to himself. Friends, as we teach the scriptures to our kids or our friends or to fellow church members, we should have confidence that it will build them up. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So as we teach God's word to one another, we should be confident it's going to produce spiritual fruit in the lives of the people that we share it with. Friends, as we bring our petitions and other people's petitions before the Lord, we ought to have confidence that he hears us and that many of those petitions will be granted. After all, in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, we read this. And this is the confidence, there's that word, that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. We as followers of Jesus ought to minister in confidence, recognizing that it's not our authority. It's not about our power. It's not about our persuasiveness. It's about an authority that Christ has that he's, he's extending through us as we minister on his behalf. And therefore, our labor is never in vain as we labor in the name of Jesus. So here are these apostles, the very first ones to be sent out. They're sent out in pairs. They're sent out with this authority from Jesus that is going to give them an incredible effectiveness in ministry. But before they actually walk out the door, and Jesus is going to give them a few instructions. The first is found in 8 and 9, verses 8 and 9. And these instructions are about what to take on this mission. Let's read again in verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. We'll stop there. So again, this is what to take on the mission. And the supply list is pretty incredible because it's pretty short. Right? Jesus basically says, you don't get to take really anything. You're not going to take food. You're not going to take money, you know, to stop at in and out and get food. You can't take a bag. A lot of scholars say that's probably referring to what was called a beggar's bag. And so the idea here is you're not going to even have the opportunity to go and try to secure some provisions for yourself on the roadside. You can't even take a bag and you only get one set of clothing. 
All of this means that Jesus is sending them out what? Dependent. Dependent. You do not have the resources that you will need to fulfill the mission. You're going to need other people to help sustain you in this calling, in this mission. You're going to have to rely on the hospitality of other people. And the experience of the apostles here models for us the experience of future ministers of God's word as they receive their provisions specifically from those who listened to them, to use the language of this text, or those who received the word from them. As we look forward in the New Testament, we see this teaching very clearly. In Galatians 6.6, 6, it says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Again, in 1 Corinthians 9.14, we read, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so, friends, like the apostles, those pastors who we set apart to minister the word of God among us in our churches today should expect to be provided for by the people that they minister to. Jesus sends these apostles out. They have meager supplies. They have limited resources. Literally, it's just the clothes on their back. And the reason God does this here, in part, is to make these apostles dependent. Certainly on the hospitality of others, but even more so dependent on the Lord, who's going to need to go ahead of them in every town and prepare the hearts of people to be receptive to their word and to open up their homes and their lives and their provisions to sustain the apostles. And so this is sending them out with great dependence. Now, beyond giving them a list of supplies, Jesus is also going to give them instruction for the two different responses that they can expect to receive as they go into towns and they preach the good news. So again, we, we looked a moment ago at what to take on the mission. Now we're going to look at what to make of the mission and Jesus is aware that not everyone will receive these apostles warmly. Not every person's going to go, oh, this is great news. I'd love to repent and follow Jesus. They're going to be met with both hospitality and hostility. And so Jesus wants to prepare them for this. Look at verse 10. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if in any place... And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they will receive hospitality. He says, as you enter into a certain town or a certain village, if somebody opens up their home to you, I want you to stay with that person. And kind of that little caveat about not departing from that house until you leave the town underscores the idea that Jesus didn't want them to get into the habit of sort of picking and choosing who they wanted to be cared for by. If they entered a town and the first receptive people to the gospel happened to be poor peasants with kind of a, you know, not a lot of resources, but they were sustaining the apostles, Jesus did not want them to say, well, now, a week later, these wealthier people or these people with more to offer me want to open up their home. I'm out of here. We're upgrading wants them to stay content, to make it about the mission. So when they receive hospitality, receive it. Consider that my provision for you, Jesus would be saying. But the other reaction they're going to get in verse 11 is hostility. Jesus knows this. In certain towns, they're going to come. They're going to be delivering the good news. They're going to be working miracles among the people, or at least they're ready and prepared to do so. But those towns are going to hear the message of the gospel, and they're going to go, no, stop. We don't want to hear that. Get out of here. And they're going to drive the apostles out. And in that case, Jesus says to them, shake it off. Actually, that's Taylor Swift. <laughs> Speaking of her, isn't there some big football game being played today in her honor somewhere? I heard that. I, I can't, I'm not sure, but I think that's happening today. So here's what Jesus actually says. He says, 
If they reject you, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. What does that mean? Probably all of us at least can get this much out of it. That sounds bad, right? It doesn't sound like Jesus is saying, like, do something friendly here. It's obvious that it's something negative, but it seems to be actually a sign of judgment. When pious Jews would travel outside of the Holy Land, okay, they'd go to another country, they'd go to Gentile territory. Upon returning to the Holy Land, they would do this. They would actually sh- shake the dust off of their sandals and, and their clothing. They'd kind of just air it all out and shake all of the dust off so that they would not contaminate the Holy Land. In effect, then, what the apostles are likely saying, we don't know this with absolute certainty, but what they're likely saying to anyone who rejects them and their word is this. They're saying, your town, although Jewish, is not a part of the people of God. For all practical purposes, they're saying, unless you repent, you are no different than the Gentiles who do not know God. And so here then we see Jesus beginning in the Gospel of Mark to recalibrate what it means to belong to the people of God. See, the Jews generally thought that they were God's people simply by virtue of being, well, Jewish. I'm a Jew, therefore I am God's people. And that's true at one level. The Jews were, of course, God's chosen people. But Jesus is showing us here that ultimately it is those who receive him and his word that are truly the people of God. This will become even more clear through the revelation of the rest of the New Testament. It is those who by faith say yes to Jesus the Messiah, whether you're Jewish or you're not, who are actually the people of God and who are the church of Jesus Christ. And so the apostles here are saying, even if you're a Jew ethnically, but you reject the gospel, you are under God's judgment. In Matthew's gospel, We find the gravity of this judgment explained a little bit more thoroughly. This is Matthew 10, 14 and 15. Jesus says, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. That's heavy. So the judgment that they're pronouncing on these villages that want to reject the apostles who are preaching the message of Jesus is an eternal judgment. We know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In the book of Genesis, it's a town of unparalleled wickedness. And ultimately, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah with fire. And Jesus is here saying, listen, for those who reject the witness that you're giving about me, those who reject the good news of the kingdom, the judgment day will be more bearable for them than the judgment that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. So Jesus lets them know the consequences of rejection. It's extremely heavy. And this is true in every generation. And we don't like to talk about judgment, and I understand that. It's not always comfortable to talk about judgment. But it's true, and it's real, and it's coming. The scriptures say that it's appointed for every person to die once, and after this comes the judgment. And so, just like nobody would want to hear a doctor tell them, I'm sorry to say this, but you have terminal cancer. We know it's that doctor's obligation to say that. It's, a, it's actually a good thing for the doctor to say that it helps that person to know what they're dealing with and to prepare themselves to deal with that. And in the same way, friends, it is good for us as believers to warn people in love about the reality of judgment because it can make us wise unto salvation when we realize that everything I've ever said, everything I've ever thought, everything I've ever done, Jesus says all the things that I've done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. It is good for people to deal with that reality. To know that God's eyes are all seeing. The scriptures say that that all of us are 
naked and laid bare before the eyes of God, all of our deeds will be exposed and there will be a judgment and we have to sit and deal with that. And what that's meant to do is drive us to the foot of the cross where Jesus says, listen, you don't have to bear that judgment because I bore it for you. Bring your sin to me. Bring your guilt to me. Bring your shame to me and I can give you forgiveness. I can give you freedom. I can give you grace. I can give you peace. And for all of us who say yes to Jesus, that's exactly what we can expect. Suddenly the judgment day is no longer a terror. So Jesus here, he preps these disciples. They know what to bring. They know how to respond. And now we come to the official send-off in verses 12 and 13. Mark 6, 12, it says, So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now I want you to notice that the first thing that is emphasized in verse 12 about the actual ministry that was taking place through these apostles is what? Do you see it there in verse 12? They went out and did what? They preached. That's the first thing that Mark draws our attention to. They went out and proclaimed or preached that people should repent. If we go back to when Jesus first called these apostles and separated them in Mark chapter 3, we see that this was the intention all along. It says, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. The primary objective of what they were doing is they were heralds of the kingdom of God. They were going from town to town, not as doctors, not as magicians, but as preachers, announcing to the people that the kingdom of God had come in Jesus Christ and they must repent. Like their master Jesus, their greatest priority is preaching the gospel. After all, it's through them that after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to heaven, the gospel will begin to make its way to the ends of the earth. They will be those who preach the gospel in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. Now, it is so tempting for me, probably for you too, when I read passages like this to have my attention drawn to the supernatural aspects of this to go, wow, they cast out many demons. Wow, they were healing people. And we'll get to that in a moment. And that's great. But the real emphasis here and all over the gospel of Mark is on the preaching ministry, first of Jesus, and then of those who are commissioned by Jesus. And the reason why this is the case is so obvious. It's this, it's the fact that the gospel alone, friends, has eternal value. Right? If, if, if somebody is healed through a person's ministry, that's great. That's wonderful. That a sickness is taken away or a disability is reversed. That's, a, that's great news. That's wonderful. But that blessing is short-lived. Sure, it might extend your life for another 10 or 20 years. It might improve your life for three or four decades, but you will still die. And this life will still come to an end. So it's only the gospel that has eternal value for people. When somebody believes the good news of the gospel and they repent of their sins and they trust in Jesus, there will come the resurrection. There will come a new body. There, there will come eternal life which is filled with joy and peace in the presence of God forever. That's what eternal means, if you're curious. So the gospel has eternal value. That's why that has to be primary in the ministry of the church. Yes, we care about the whole person. Yes, we want to see people prospering and doing well. And we should strive to see that. But more than anything, we want to see sinners reconciled to their Savior. Because that is what will bless people forever. There's no end to it. To heal a person is wonderful, but it's short-lived. To heal a person's soul is far greater. 
I want you to notice the consistency here between what the apostles of Jesus are preaching in Mark chapter 6 and what John the Baptist preached and what Jesus, our Messiah, preached. John's baptism, we read early on in this gospel, was a baptism of repentance. He told the people in Luke 3.8 to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So John's practice as the forerunner to Jesus was to tell people, listen, the kingdom of God is about to be here and you need to repent of the specific sins that you're living in, the things that are drawing you away from God. And you need to turn away from that and open your heart up to what God is doing now. It was a message of repentance. And then John's cousin Jesus, the Messiah, comes on the scene and he does the exact same thing. Here's Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus demands that people repent of their sins and their rebellion as the appropriate response to the arrival of the kingdom of God. And now here come Jesus's representatives, the apostles, and they don't change the message. Right here, we read in verse 12 that they are proclaiming that people should repent. Friends, all faithful gospel preaching calls for repentance. We cannot tell people that they can carry on with business as usual and somehow find grace and mercy and life in Jesus Christ. It doesn't work like that. Over in Matthew's gospel, we were filled in a little bit more on the content of the sermon here. So they didn't just walk around and just go, repent. People are like, what are we even talking about here? Here's what Matthew 10, 7 says. Jesus told them, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus would say to them, tell them to repent. So what is repentance? Well, there's so many ways to answer this question. I'll give you a different angle at it today. Repentance is bringing your life into alignment with the reality of the kingdom of God. Oftentimes, when we talk about repentance, we talk about the idea of turning. That's what the Greek word means. Or maybe you're kind of doing a 180. You're going this way in your life. You hear the good news of the kingdom of God and you reorient everything and you say, now I'm on this path. The Apostles here, just like Jesus, are making an announcement about the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. The king, Jesus, is here and you need to repent. You need to bring your life into alignment with the reality of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king. The kingdom is real and that should change everything about the way we live our lives. And so friend, I have to ask you this morning, have you brought your life into alignment with the reality of God's kingdom? Has that completely restructured your life? Because if that has done no restructuring of your life, you have not yet responded appropriately to the good news of Jesus. We are called to repent, to realign everything with him and his ways. So here are these apostles, they're preaching and they're calling people to repent. And of course, this preaching is accompanied by extraordinary signs and wonders. The apostles, we read, also cast out many demons and they healed many who were sick. So notice, just like their master Jesus, for these 12 apostles, there are supernatural signs that accompany their ministry. This is, of course, to validate that their message actually came from Jesus. It's to validate that they are operating in Jesus's authority. In Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, we read this. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. So Jesus shared it first. And it was attested to us by those who heard. That would be the apostles. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. 
So think about it as the apostles go out into Israel to town after town and they're preaching this message and they're simultaneously driving demons out of people and they're simultaneously healing people of all sorts of sicknesses, it would prove that these 12 men are in fact serving with the very power of God that rested on Jesus himself. There's no disconnect. Jesus is preaching and he's driving out demons. Jesus is preaching and he's healing people. And now the apostles are doing the very same thing. The people who had ears to hear would realize that that same power that was on Jesus, the power of God, is now at work in these 12 men. And this, of course, would pave the way for their teaching to be received as what it actually was, the very word of God. Now, people often ask when reading texts like this, and we'll, we'll bring this message to a close with these ideas, they'll ask questions like this, can Christians today still cast out demons? Or can Christians today still heal people? Well, that's all the time we have here today. So let's just pray and let's just wrap this thing up. You'd be like, you know what? I, I want my money back. I want a refund. You can't leave us on a cliffhanger. There's obviously in the church, if you've been in the church for some time, there is some level of debate about this. But, but I would say that the answer is yes. But I would rephrase the question a bit and then I would offer a qualification. Let me rephrase the question first. Instead of, can Christians today still cast out demons? I'd rephrase it this way. Does God still work through Christians to cast out demons today? Does God still work through Christians to heal people today? I think the answer is yes. In John 14, 12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. But now let me offer a qualification. Here would be the qualification. We should not be surprised if we don't experience miracles as widely or frequently in our churches as we saw with Jesus and the apostles. Now, some of you might come from a very charismatic background and you go, well, why is that the case? I, I think we should see miracles as frequently and as widely distributed in the churches today. Well, here's why, as the late R.C. Sproul put it, in the Bible, we find that the fundamental purpose of miracles is to authenticate agents of revelation. Let me say that differently. The fundamental purpose of miracles in the Old Testament and the New Testament is to prove that those who spoke for God actually came from God. Are you tracking with me? And this is what the apostles are experiencing here. As they are preaching the gospel and these miracles are accompanying their ministry, people are going, okay, these guys are clearly with Jesus. They're operating in his authority. But if you go all the way back in the Old Testament and you look at Moses, for example, who God raised up to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt, Moses is reluctant to go to the people. And the reason why is because he says to the Lord, I... I'm concerned that people aren't going to believe that you actually sent me. And God says, that's okay. I can take care of that. God gives him a series of miracles, like taking his staff and throwing it on the ground and it becomes a serpent. And everybody panics. And then Moses grabs it by the tail and it turns into a staff again. Or taking his hand and sticking it inside of his cloak, pulling it out and it's leprous white. And everybody freaks out because he's a leper for a moment and then putting it back into his cloak and pulling it out and it's restored again. And God gives him this series of miracles. Here's Exodus 4, 5. So that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Do you see the connection there? I'm giving you these signs and wonders so that they will believe that you have come from me. When the esteemed Pharisee Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, he said this in John 3, 2. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. How does this Pharisee know this? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
See, these supernatural signs and wonders are authenticating the messenger. Today, we're in a slightly different situation. Today, God's revelation is complete. It's called the canon of Scripture. It's the written word of God. Therefore, we can test now whether or not a messenger has truly come from God by comparing the message to the revelation God's already given us. And in fact, the New Testament encourages us to do that very thing, to test all of the words of prophecy that come from so-called prophets. We have God's word to test these things against. And yet, that does not mean that God never does the extraordinary to confirm his messengers. He does, and often it's in places where the gospel is going for the very first time. If you talk to missionaries, even some of the missionaries among us, they can tell you stories of the gospel penetrating into a brand new people group and that preaching of the gospel for the first time being accompanied by signs and wonders. This also does not mean that God never does the extraordinary in churches like ours, where we have the written word of God, simply to bless his children, to strengthen our faith, and to remind us of his love and his care for us. In fact, friends, look again at the second part of verse 13. It says that they anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, if you know your New Testament well, that'll take your mind to only one other place, and it's James chapter 5. Here's what James 5, 14 through 15 says. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. What's so significant about this verse in James is that James, the brother of our Lord, does not say, listen, if anybody in the church is sick, bring them to the 12 apostles who will pray for them and heal them. He says, just bring them to the elders or the pastors of the church. Let the pastors of the church anoint him with oil and God will heal this individual. To, to be certain, God is not obligated to heal us of every sickness or disease simply because we follow James 5. God is God and he can choose to heal or not to heal in any given situation according to his wisdom and his good purposes. But friends... While he is not obligated to heal us, he invites us to seek the healing. And I've been in ministry long enough to have firsthand experience of people taking seriously James chapter 5, coming forward to the elders of the church, anointing that individual with oil and praying that God would heal them and them being instantaneously healed and walking out of the church. I've seen it on more than one occasion. And through doing that, God certainly strengthened my faith, strengthened their faith, strengthens the faith of his people. And again, he reminds us of his love and care. And so as we close today, I just want to take this opportunity to say to all of us, friends, listen, anytime we're sick, anytime we're facing serious sickness, probably not every cough and runny nose, but a real sickness, real suffering, let us not neglect to obey James chapter 5. Let us say one of the things that I'm going to do is I'm going to come to the elders of my church and I'm going to ask them, will you anoint me with oil? Will you pray in faith and ask that God would heal me? Far be it from us to not have because we never asked. So in our passage this morning, friends, we ought to be once again astounded by the authority of Jesus, God's son. Of course, in this passage, that authority is on display through the 12 apostles that Jesus sent. What the world needs in every generation is a fresh revelation of the authority of Jesus Christ on display through the ministry of his disciples. And as you and I go confidently in Christ's authority, completely depending on him, faithfully proclaiming the gospel baptizing those who receive it and teaching them all that he commanded us, the people that we know will see the authority of Jesus on display. That doesn't mean, of course, that everyone is going to receive our word, but some will. 
And for their sake and for the glory of Christ, we must go. Would you please pray with me? God, we are astounded by the authority of Jesus the Messiah. He is the only one, the only man who has ever walked this earth with the very authority of God. Because, of course, he is God incarnate. No one in and of themselves has ever had the authority to forgive sin, to control nature, to heal any and every disease that he chooses, even to raise the dead and to drive out demons. Nobody has ever had that authority in and of themselves except for Jesus, our Savior and Lord. And because all authority has been given to him, we trust him. Jesus, this morning as your people, we once again affirm we trust you and we want to follow you. You alone have the words of eternal life. You are the king of God's kingdom and we are your glad subjects. But Jesus, this morning, we're also reminded that you have extended your authority. You've delegated your authority to your followers and that would be each and every one of us. And with that authority, you do not intend that we sit on it. You intend that we exercise it, that we go and we make disciples of all the nations, that we preach the gospel, that we baptize those who believe, that we teach people everything that you have commanded us. And so, Lord, would you help us to do that, to go in confidence, knowing that your word will never return void, knowing that you will open hearts and open minds as we share and that with our own eyes, we'll be able to witness a harvest of souls. So God, would you please instill in us this week an urgency and a confidence in the mission that you've given us. And God, would you continue to give us at Apostles Church greater influence here in Santa Barbara as you use us to bring many sons and daughters to glory. We ask this now for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.